external readers. I'm Katherine Druckmann. I'm talking to Doc Searles, our editor-in-chief, and we have a guest today, Bob Erdman. He is the security product manager for Help Systems. He works on Linux and Unix security for governments and businesses. Thanks, Bob, for talking to us today, lending us a little bit of your expertise. Thank you for having me. So I think, as I understand it, your particular interests are in malware, viruses, ransomware, that, side, that sort of thing, um, as they affect Linux users. And I, it seems to me that a lot of Unix, Linux users feel exempt from a lot of the threats that are out there. We, we, you know, we, when you think of viruses, typically people are thinking, oh, well, that mostly affects Windows users, but you know, how are Linux users affected? You know, they're affected these days just like any other operating system. And in the past, we've, we've heard a lot of those same things from our user community and other people that we work with. You know, it's open source. It's fundamentally more secure than stupid old windows. Um, desktops are where all the hackers go. You know, that's where they're always targeting. I really don't need to worry about it all that much. And that big open source brain is going to protect me. So I really don't have to worry about a lot of different things. But more and more now, we are seeing targets that are not windows. It's about from the surveys that we do between 30 and 35% of all the new malware that's being discovered out there in the field is specifically targeting um, Linux, Unix operating system types. Um, kind of lumping in that some of that is Mac, some of that is Android. They're sort of in those same flavors, but not Windows anymore. So everybody is being affected. Um, the largest ransomware payment that we publicly know of to date is actually for Linux. Can you tell us uh, a little which bit? One, which one was that? Uh, that, um, that was that big payment over in um, Korea. Ah, oh, uh, that big hosting, hosting provider. Oh. Yep, they had all of their um, systems compromised. That's still, from what we've seen um, in our latest surveys, the largest single payment that we know of was that one and that was where they compromised the backend Linux hosting servers for a lot of business websites, took all of the systems down, you know, and they paid over a million dollars um, from all public reports for that um, breach to get the keys. And the keys don't always help you, you know, um, they're always going to tell you not to buy the ransom key. Uh, there's no guarantee that it'll work. Sometimes it's false. They just want to take the money and run. Um, sometimes you'll get the key, uh, much like the Apex group that was recently attacked. They got their keys. They got a lot of their data back. Some of it was a little scrambled. It broke a lot of the files. It wasn't just a um, quick solution to apply that key and everything comes back to life, but it did help them. It's, you know, it's really a business decision that you'll have to make with your IT professionals, your outside consultants, and your law enforcement contacts, you know, is it better for you to try and pay the ransom and get your data back or is it better for you to fight it, you know, and, and rely on your backups and your protections? That's, that is a scary, scary story. I, you know, I actually was just reading about that in, in preparation for this podcast. Actually, it's um, <laughs> a little unsettling. It's more than a little unsettling, right? Um, so I'm wondering, so what, I mean, there obviously are some advantages to using an open source operating system. And a lot of people feel like, they keep their, their software up to date and they apply patches and everything they're, you know, they're, they feel a little bit better at, about things, but um, you know, how, how much better off are people using our Linux users than windows users? 
I mean, personally, I'm a huge believer in Linux. That's been my primary focus for the 27 years that I've been a, a computer professional. It's generally been on either Unix or Linux systems. Uh, one of the interesting, interesting things that you just mentioned, though, was patching and configuration. That is always the Achilles heel, especially in a lot of businesses. Um, they aren't patched. That vulnerability mm. we just talked about, that ransomware, if they were running old kernels, old utilities, old web hosting, and they were easily broken into. A lot of times we aren't seeing people quickly applying patches. Um, the big issue with Equifax, I think it was Equifax, mm -hmm. missing patches, things that had already been patched. Um, the big issues with NotPetya and Eternal Blue, again, that was Windows, patches existed, patches not applied. And we see that over and over, we see that happening across all the operating systems. Linux is just as vulnerable, sometimes more because they just don't go down that much. You know, people kind of got into the habit of needing to reboot Windows a lot because in the old <laughs> days, a lot of the patches required reboots. Sure. People don't get in that habit so much with Linux and Unix machines because they just don't go down that often. They really don't have to be rebooted very much. Um, even recently now with, you know, live splicing with the kernel, you don't even have to restart it to do a kernel update anymore as often as you used to. So things can fall by the wayside and it depends on how people decide to design their patching cycles. Um, you know, from our commercial end and the clients that we had, we uh, generally ended at the spot that it's better for us to patch instantly and worry about any fallout from not testing against the patches as much because we didn't usually find any issues with the patches and we had a better protection rate than holding off for three, four weeks, trying to run all of these patches through all of our QA cycles, finally getting them out when the attackers are usually five minutes later, they're already out the door trying to attack these things because they oh, knew sure. about them before we did. Um, so we try and patch much faster on our side. We've seen a lot of issues with configuration as well. Um, by all reports, configuration is one of the major problems. Uh, we see it all the time. There's some really great graphics in some of the um, IBM Threat Exchange, um, their X-Force articles that have it kind of mapped out by what type of breach did we see over the last few years. And by far the largest is just simple misconfigurations. You know, you're leaving buckets exposed for your data up in the cloud. You're leaving systems open to the internet on ports and protocols that you forgot you had open. Somebody makes a change for a quick fix that they forget to roll back. So many times we're seeing that initial infection coming in through a misconfiguration error. You know, they can get that initial breach, drop a little malware, they start to reach out to their command and control infrastructure, bring in more malware, start moving laterally around and living off the land in your environment. So there's a lot of different reasons that we need to worry about that. And it's not always even outside hacker groups. It might be disgruntled insiders taking advantage of your configurations to get things they shouldn't have and to cause damage that you don't want them to cause. Hmm. That's interesting. Good point. So, so we, you know, we talk about you know, obviously something like a big hosting company is going to be a more appealing target, right? But what are, what are the threats to like Linux desktop users? Um, more and more we're seeing that the smaller institutions are where the majority of the attacks are occurring because they don't generally have as good of security as those larger infrastructures do. There's definitely targeted attacks where they're doing their research and they're gonna go out against a deep pocket and try and make a, a big score you know, all at once. But a lot of times, especially on the information stealing where they're trying to get people's health information, get their personal information, they're building that database to use for identity theft and other things. They're attacking more of those smaller providers because they don't generally 
have that big infrastructure set up to protect themselves. Um, a lot of things that we're seeing are attacks against smaller healthcare, especially. They're not going after the large hospital network that has a big IT infrastructure. They're going after the outside clinic attached to that large hospital network because once they can get a foothold you know, at that doctor's office in the strip mall, now they can hop back to that bigger enterprise infrastructure. And all of that data is really valuable to them, especially if they can get healthcare type data um, because of the breadth of personal information that's held inside of it. Sure. Health, health privacy is, is, a, is, a, is a kind of a hot topic. and It's a little bit of a... No, I mean, it's scary. I mean, it's a it's a scary topic, to be honest. Sorry, Doc. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, if if you're looking at a a pie chart of of the categorical types that they're after, I mean, if uh, you just mentioned healthcare as one, I imagine like financial, retail, um, but then there's uh, I don't know if if military or anything like that is a target. I imagine they're fairly better secured, but. Um, you know, I mean, there, there's less money being spent by the federal government anyway right now on on stuff. I'm, I'm wondering if, if there's a pie chart of what are the typical categories uh, if, as those things sort out. Um, there, there are some of those out there and available. We actually just did a fairly large um, survey recently about ransomware and malware, and it wasn't so much get, um, out towards industry, but the types of data that was being stolen. And the number one um, issue that we were seeing was consumer information, actually. That was top of the list because of the so many different things they're able to do with that. Uh, moving down from there, we had financial data and then company intellectual property, and that kind of bled between commercial and government interests. You know, many times an intellectual property may be the plans for the next generation surface air missile or next part yeah, of the airplane. Yeah. It's I, amazing I how many small suppliers to the government actually exist. Right. Yeah. So, so here's a, a many points of failure, potential points a, of failure. A, a, a question is: okay, if people, if if the bad guys want consumer information, are they selling it? What are they doing with it? They are definitely selling it, uh, and then they're using it to go out and, of course, then do um, identity theft, try and compromise your banking credentials and other things. So they're building that database in many little pieces. If they can get a few pieces from this person and a few pieces from another company on that person and a few more pieces from somewhere else, they suddenly have a really good record of you. It's much like the marketers are doing today. They're gathering data from all the public records, all the things you do on Facebook and Google and everywhere else, and they're building that um, picture of you. And that picture is now really valuable because they can use that to kind of take your identity over. Um, we're seeing that happen a lot with minor children as well. So people that are attacking education, um, K through 12, college age even. So it's much less likely that you're gonna notice a new credit card open for your six-year-old because you're not watching oh. their credit report than you will if they open it on you. Huh. And that identity is just an identity to them still. So if they can start to use those names, use those numbers, you know, they're building that, that compromise. And we wow. see more and more that they're staying inside of these enterprise networks much longer. Average dwell time is like 180 to 200 days where they're in that network, moving around, living off the land and gathering data, you know, before they launch anything that may be public facing to you where you see what's going on. Or, or, sometimes or they, it's years. Yeah, or they, or they may never become public, I suppose, right? I mean, in many cases, it, they don't need to. I mean, if they're not, ran, if they're not doing a ransom move, they may just harvest the data and then just sell it somewhere else and 
That's true. A lot of these um, teams, and they are teams, they have guys that specialize in the different areas. You know, they have a compromise person whose job it is to get inside, and then they have somebody that they're paying to install the oh, different wow. pieces of malware in the system, and then they'll farm that off to essentially a broker network, and he's going to go out and slice up what access they have to what systems sell that off to his threat actors. And then they're going to come in and take over, you know, and then they're going to try and stay in there, um, get their malware in place, get the tools that they like, and then kind of live off the land until they're ready to launch an attack. And it may be quite a while that they're in there getting set up before they actually pull that trigger, especially with ransomware. Cause of course they don't want to just get your current files. They want to get your backups and your HA and everything else. So the deeper they can get, you know, the more money they can try and extract from you. And they're making a lot. Um, Sam Sam Group, something like $6 million they're estimating now in the last uh, year or two. Um, Royuk, I think about $3.8 million they think they've taken in since last August. So it's big money. These are names for bad guys, you're telling us. These are names for bad guy type attack groups, yep. And they're, they are tracing cryptocurrency transactions. They're not always getting to the end and prosecuting. Um, it's been pretty tough actually, but a lot of times you can see the flow of the currency through the transaction chains. So they're taking estimates based on what they know and what's publicly been released, you know, but it's millions and that's, you know, just a tiny fraction of what's really costing. Cause of course, then you have the cost of the cleanup and the damage, the raising of insurance, the loss of your brand loyalty, you know, all of those outside factors, it's multiples of that, you know, $10 million. So if you want to be a bad guy, uh, where do you apply? I mean, who, who gets this job? I mean, uh, uh, do I have to go to a certain country? Is there somewhere on the dark web I can submit an application? <laughs> I'm just wondering. I mean, there's clearly a career here. If you want it. There are a lot of places on the dark web that you can go. Um, if you were thinking about where you physically want to be located, uh, I would highly suggest someone without an extradition treaty to the United States, of course. Um, mm -hmm. But that all exists out there. Many times now with ransomware, for example, it's more ransomware as a service. So you will go out, you uh -huh. will buy your toolkit, and the people writing your toolkit will support you. They will give you assistance and they will take a slice of that money that you're going to collect for themselves. So it's not very expensive. Um, you can go out and buy machine access. There are whole marketplaces set up where you can go in and say what kind of machine you want or maybe what company you want that machine to belong to. And they will guarantee you at the time of sale that you will have access through the credential set that they give you. They can't guarantee how long it'll last, but that is an open connection when they give it to you. And you can go in and start typing in Fortune 500 names and you will start seeing things come up. Um, usually you can go in on those as a owner of the systems. Like I can go in for one for my company and they'll generally cut you a break to sell you back the access. Um, but it does exist and it's pretty easy to get to. And that's, those are just a few of the ways. Um, DOS attacks, you can order those up, of course. They've been prosecuting a lot of those lately. We've seen some recent um, law enforcement action there, which has been great, taking down a few of those networks and a few of those websites that were a little sketchy. Yeah, we're doing this for commercial to help out IT, but really they're doing it to sell to people that want to damage IT. Um, so, so more and more they're starting to get after some of those people, but it's tough. If you don't have a place where U.S. enforcement can reach over there, you know, that many times it's very hard to prosecute. And I would imagine there's a lot of expertise there. I mean, 
they're very good at hiding. Exactly. It's very profitable and therefore you can, I suppose, hire the top talent. That's mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah. And well, the whole state sponsored thing too, you know, where sure. they don't really care because the state is, is sponsoring that. There's a lot of, um, a lot of thoughts around places like North Korea and the issues they're having with bringing in revenue, you know, so they're using some of these attack paths to go out and try and generate revenue for the state. Um, other places, I think they're trying to steal secrets where it's more China wanting your factory secrets or some other country. But there's lots of reasons that the state actors are in there as well. And we all know we're doing it to people too. We just don't really know what. Uh, but the NSA is not sitting by lightly, I'm sure. Yeah, right. no, we don't really know what. The, well, it's, uh, <laughs> we know some of our it. readers. Yeah. Other than that, we don't know. Yeah. Cyber warfare, you have sides, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so they're fascinating. Yeah, and Another unfortunately, so much leaked from the NSA. A lot of these attack patterns are coming from things that were dropped out to WikiLeaks and other places that had been internal um, usage by U.S. entities that then got leaked out to the world. And of course, the hackers take that over and they start using it too. Huh. Fun. Well, and then the NSA just open sourced a, a bunch of their software, which was interesting. Just um, is that helpful when the NSA open sources a bunch of stuff like that uh, to you and the good guys in this thing, and as as well as to, I imagine, you know, it's open source <laughs> guys to use it too. Yeah, they generally aren't going to do that unless we've dealt with some of those things already and have some protections in place. But it does help people, you know, like us that are working to help write protections of things because that gives us more knowledge. It lets us validate that the tools we're building, you know, are going to take care of the attacks that are being generated and coming back against us. You know, so in the long term, it's good. I think there's some short-term pain to some of those things, though, because attackers will jump on it. And if you're not keeping up, um, you may be susceptible to some of that. So now that we've thoroughly scared everyone listening, not that our readers <laughs> didn't already know a lot of this. I mean, we're, we're, we know what's what, right? For the most part. Um, <laughs> so what can, what, can, what can we do about these things? How do we avoid these problems? How, I mean, obviously the big companies, you know, can afford to hire experts like you and that's great. But what about just people like me, you know, users and whatnot? How can we protect our data, our consumer information, all of this wonderful, valuable um, stuff that's out there about all of us? How do we protect ourselves? You know, a lot of it comes down initially to just good computer hygiene, your patching, your configurations, you know, many times known security flaws on servers and desktops are being used for that initial attack vector. And you just, you don't want to do that. You want to make sure that you're patched, make sure that you're configured correctly, um, disabling protocols and things you don't need. So leaving things like RDP or SSH connections open to places they don't know to be open to or open to the internet even we see sometimes you know, it makes it really easy to start breaking into these things. So knowing what you have on your network, knowing where your network has holes, knowing where your network is providing services outside of your company environment or your home environment. Uh, and there's a lot of free tools. There's a lot of paid tools that can help you determine those things. Even as a home user, um, you know, plug for one of the things we have, we have a free version of our network mapping tool. It's good for like 10 connections. A lot of people use it at their house. They can plug it in, see all their little devices around the house, where data is going, what data is happening. But there's a lot of commercial tools available like that as well. Um, training your employees if you're a business, understanding 
what a phishing email looks like. Phishing is a huge attack vector, so they are gonna send you a message crafted to look like something you will open, either replicating maybe the logo of a company that you've done business with, or telling you, we see a lot at the end of the quarter now, it's the end of Q1. There'll be a whole lot of phishing attacks around, hey, there's a problem with my invoice, sales help me kind of a message and of course that's my commission I'm going to try and click on that and see what's going on and they'll have a malicious payload hidden in the back so helping your employees understand what those things look like or even you as a home user understanding what those look like if that link that it came from doesn't look quite right it probably isn't quite right because they will buy um, web links that look very close to the link that you would have so it's not US bank it's USB spelled wrong ANK or something like that to try yeah. and get you to go to their site first. There's also tools out there that you can use for that domain doppelganger type tools where you can plug in what's your legitimate website, show me all the variations that may exist and if any of them are actually active. You know, it's funny, I, I, I can't count how many, I guess it's ransom um, uh, spams that I get that say, Hey, password, which is, you know, like a password I used in 1993 or something, you know, um, uh, I have everything on you and I'm going to take you down unless you send me some Bitcoin. Um, and I always ignore those or throw those away. Sh should I be doing that? Should I be throwing them away? I mean, should I, should I save them and send them to law enforcement? What, what, what do you do with those things? I mean, it, at this point, I just discovered today, as a matter of fact, my spam detection is actually putting those in spam. Uh, it just sees them as spam. Um, but there are quite a few of them. And is there, I mean, besides ignoring them or throwing them away, is there something somebody ought to be doing with those? You know, as a home user, usually we just recommend to throw them away, don't open them, don't click on them, especially if you can recognize that it's something that's pretty old. Um, it's most likely coming from one of those larger data dumps. Um, it's amazing how many people in the United States now are under some form of identity protection based on all of the local breaches that have happened. Um, I personally think I'm under like four or five that have been offered because every time a big breach happens, they have to offer everybody identity theft protection. They offer it for like a year, but those data dumps are, a lot of those are fairly old data. So you're seeing those weird old passwords coming from things like that Yahoo breach, um, that yeah. some dump where they're, they're um, parsing out different pieces of that huge data archive that that one person on the dark web has. So a lot of it's been gleaned from years and years and years old. Internally, um, usually, you know, we recommend letting your internal security team know. If nothing else, they're gonna wanna tune their spam filters to watch out for more of this stuff. But generally, unless it's something fairly large, you know, there's not a lot that law enforcement locally can do. Right. The, the yeah. police departments just don't have that kind of expertise. Usually you generally have to get up to something more of a, a federal um, type thing. And an email many times can, can pull them in, of course, because of commerce rules going across state lines with an email. You know, that's enough where you could generally get a government intervention, but unless it's something big, they probably aren't going to look at it. So we usually just recommend, you know, throw it away, don't click on it. Um, <laughs> You know, kind of look and see if it looks like it makes sense. A lot of times those personal ones are fake anyways. Um, yeah, but you need to be a little careful. It's like, hey, I'm going to release your compromising photos from your trip to Vegas, blah, blah, blah. And you know you never did that. You're probably mm -hmm. okay. You know, if it's something you might have done, <laughs> there's been a lot of attacks on those adult websites in the last few years because they know it's embarrassing. And if they can get to you and then try and use that to leverage you or blackmail you into doing different things. What, what about mobile and uh, and IoT? Are, are those a major concern at this point? I mean, there's a lot more 
variety among operating systems operating out there, for example. There is, and there's a lot of malware these days that is um, Android and iPhone based. Um, a lot of it is hiding in plain sight as sort of legitimate applications. And maybe they're not out there to break your phone or steal your photos. A lot of times they're trying to use your phone CPU to do crypto mining or to do DOS attacks. Um, the big vendors try to do a pretty good job of scrubbing and taking a look at what's on those different stores. Um, they don't catch everything, though, of course. There's a lot of it out there that's being exposed all the time. And uh, many of those antivirus applications that exist on those stores are literally junk. They don't do anything. Um, if you are going to use a mobile antivirus, reputable vendor is probably the best thing to look at. So it's somebody that you recognize that does antivirus for other things. Um, because a lot of those apps, they're, they're really not looking for anything other than your data because of course they give you, give me access to blah, 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 so that I can start up. And then they're just gonna mine that data off your, your device. Um, IOT is a huge issue these days. So a lot of those IOT devices from security cameras to smart TVs, um, to your key card system to get into your network are connected to the network, possibly connected to the internet or connected to Wi-Fi, and they are being attacked at an alarming rate. Uh, there are many variants of malware out there for those. Those are generally Linux-based because it's small and lightweight. Yeah, Sometimes it's those, Linux. Yeah. It is. Sometimes those devices are, or that malware is even being ported now over to more of the server side. But uh, Mariah is one of the big ones. There was just a new version of that that um, popped in the wild the last few days with a whole bunch of new exploits. Uh, their main targets in this one are smart TVs and uh, presentation systems. Some of those new Wi-Fi. Um, I'm going to get up on the, the camera screen on the wall without having to plug in my HDMI cord type solutions. But mm. more and more that's happening. And there's not always anything you can do about it. A lot of those devices don't have firmware that's easy to upgrade. You know, they change versions every three weeks on some of those things in the consumer side, so they're already out of date by the time you find out there's a problem. So more and more it's getting to be, you really have to understand, and that, especially on the corporate side, again, gets to understanding what's on your network. You know, if somebody's plugged in a rogue access point and it has a critical flaw in its firmware, that may be an entry point into your data center um, as people can attack that as they're coming around and looking for things to do. Uh, we've even seen people go in and replace firmware to steal print jobs great place to get company information is oh, getting wow. somebody yeah. else's compromised firmware on a network connected printer. So every time you print something, it also copies to me and I can just read at my leisure what you're sending. Interesting. What about cars? What, I would imagine that there are a lot of security concerns now with, um, well, I mean, before we even get to you know, self-driving cars, but cars are very connected now, so. They are, and they're um, very often being hacked in high-profile YouTube videos to show people what's being done. So all of those manufacturers are working really hard to secure those systems. Um, but there are some pretty interesting videos to watch where you can get out and, um, you know, just take over X car and watch them sit in the back seat and take over the controls on these smart cars. Um, it definitely exists, and it's going to be a problem that they have to deal with, just like any other device. 
everything that you start to connect, I mean, there's now, you know, you could connect your refrigerator to the internet so it can start to tell you when your milk's running low. Well, that means now somebody can try and get to your refrigerator, you know, and take over that device. So every, every new piece is a new way. Even medical devices are starting to show those. I mean, there's been some of those great spy thriller TV shows where, hey, I'm going to launch my attack against the guy's pacemaker. And it looks great on TV, but those things are starting to be seen. Um, I haven't heard of any big proven um, actual issues with them, but they definitely, by security research, have found that they are um, vulnerable to those types of attacks because now, of course, they're making them without wires. It's Bluetooth or NFC. You get close enough so that we can see what's going on with that internal implantable device. You know, that opens up other vectors again, of course, that could be pretty scary. Well, well I'm depressed now. I, I feel <laughs> You know, yeah, so we can title this, uh, this podcast. Lock your doors. Be, be, be afraid. Be very afraid. Um, <laughs> a little just, fear is probably good in some of these yeah, things. Fear is your friend. Um, I, so t tell us a little bit about, you know, help systems and, and, and what your day job is like and, and how, you know, how that looks for you. I'm a product manager, so I think I have a great day job. Um, I get to talk to our customers and our partners, and then I get to go back to our development teams and say, hey, go build this. But Help Systems is a, a big worldwide company. So we are all over the world. We have like 20 offices, and we build software for either security solutions or um, process automation and intelligence across from windows to mainframe. So I get to see a lot of different things, but uh, the majority of my focus is of course, Linux, Unix type solutions. So beyond just antivirus, we look at a lot of that more of defense in depth kind of thing. And that's, that's a good key for a lot of, of industries and all the government guys, if any are listening, they hear that defense in depth all the time, but you know, having something like an endpoint solution, then having something a little bit wider on the network. So building things that can see communication channels between your compromised devices and these threat actors anywhere in the world and being able to recognize that um, with those types of things. Uh, SIM solutions, multi-factor authentication, uh, more and more that's being offered from all kinds of different websites. Something you can take advantage of to help protect yourself. So it's not just that I know my password. I also either I'm holding a device or I'm using my fingerprint and a biometric reader, you know, something you have, something you are, something that you know, to make sure that it's harder for people to get into your accounts. Um, so a lot of the big web service companies now, your banks and financials are all opening up that MFA. Um, definitely something to take advantage of if you can do that. So we really, you know, we really enjoy doing the things that we're doing and be able to help protect all these different industries. I work with little five server installations up to Fortune 50s that have 105,000 servers in their environment. So it really gives wow. us a, a broad mix of people to look at and, you know, to understand and to see what's going on in the world. Yeah. Well, you, you have a, a good window into how Linux has changed inside of uh, the corporate world. I wouldn't say corporate America because you're an international company, but what, what, what are the biggest trends you're seeing right now? I mean, we, we talk a lot about or think a lot about containers and, and, you know, a, a particular angle I'm, I'm looking for here is actually how how far we've gone from where we were when you were starting out 27 years ago, right? <laughs> and in, in terms of actually respecting the need to sort of stay true to those or, or original, you know, free software and open source imperatives. And, you know, as we automate more and more and more and we 
program at higher and higher levels, you sort of tend to miss some of why Linux succeeded in the first place. And I'm just wondering if you have, mm-hmm. you have a window on some of that inside companies. I was wondering if you'd share some of that with us. We're seeing more and more migration towards those Linux workloads um, in the cloud. The cloud may be a private cloud in your premises, or it may be a public cloud like Amazon or Azure or Google and some of the others. But more and more, we're starting to see those workloads um, being just in time and coming up in those cloud type environments. So it's much more commodity based. You know, you're, you're unfortunately letting on how long I've been doing some of this. I think we had at our biggest point, 11 different builds of our software because back then every hardware vendor had their own system five Unix build and you had to compile for yeah. one of them um, where now it's much more open. We can build our Linux solution to work across all the different distributions and people are spinning up servers for hours or minutes. Uh, we have some companies that we work with that spin up thousands of systems a night to do special workloads and then they tear them down when the workload's over and then they get ready and the next day they come back and they do it again um, because they're using those cost factors. I'm going to pay by the minute. I'm going to spin things up as I need them. I'm going to take them back down as I don't need them anymore. And getting that conveyor belt going um, just in time updating, of course, is happening a lot. So as I'm spinning up fixes for applications or systems, I can push them up into the production site, let other things fall off the back. So it's much more fluid than it used to be. Um, We personally aren't working with a lot of companies that are 100% in the cloud. They generally are much more of that hybrid model where there's things that are traditional IT that are sitting in a data center, but it's a much smaller data center now. And then there's things that are up being used as cloud workload. And the clouds definitely can be very secure, just like your internal things. It's really understanding who is responsible for what when you move up to the cloud. You know, it's not Amazon's job to patch your Linux. It's Amazon's job to make sure that there is fire and HVAC and power and that the network connections coming into their data center are secure. And then they're going to hand you the keys to an OS and that OS is yours now. And you have to make sure that you're patching those things. So looking at that shared responsibility model and understanding where that line is drawn, you know, infrastructure as a service, that's very much you. Software as a service, like, um, going into somebody's big SaaS provided system, like maybe a Salesforce CRM, that's very much them. And then you're much more needing to interact with that vendor you're going to start to do business with and make sure that their security policies align with your security policies um, so that you're staying secure with your data. Do you interact much with the, um, with the, uh, the Amazon and the Azure and the Rackspace type cloud people or, is there enough of a just a because they're just handing the keys over to you, they're just you know bare service on it. They're like the you, you like the power company or the gas company for you. You know we interact with a lot of them um, just because we're partners with those big technology providers. So the big Linux distribution vendors, the big cloud providers. You know since we're trying to help with that backend security for the customers consuming against those models. So we actually do talk with them quite a bit. So, you know, doing things like monitoring your cloud environment, letting you see it at your desktop, at your office, what's going on and being able to automatically trigger workloads back out to your cloud environment. So we work, you know, heavily with all of those partners and it's 
really great to do that. I mean, they're all very great to work with. You know, nobody can do it alone anymore. Everything has gotten so big. Amazon's definitely trying, but um, mm. you know, I think they had something like 4,000 different applications slash services now in their catalog. It's incredible the things that they're doing, but you know, there's always a reason for people like us to be around as well. That's great. So in conclusion, <laughs> no, let's go over it again. Be a little bit afraid. Yeah. <laughs> Fear is your friend. Um, yeah. Backups are your friend. Backups, <laughs> apply those patches, do yeah. those updates. Oh, yep. Be careful. Yeah. So um, let's include a few a few links to some of the things you mentioned. You mentioned your, your network monitoring tool that's free. We'll include a link to that. Um, on the podcast page and anything else, if you'd like to send it over, that'd be great. I'm sure the listeners would appreciate it. We'll definitely do that. Uh, we have a free security scan that I would highly recommend. Uh, works for Linux uh -huh. and Unix. You point it at your system. We'll do an audit against Center for Internet Security, CIS audit for you and just kind of show you your reds and greens and a nice little PDF report and where you have um, easy things that you can go in and fix like password policies, unencrypted services, open permissions and things like that. So we highly encourage that customers, non-customers alike. It's a great little tool and there's no obligation to us to use it. It's just one of those free services that we like to give back. That's great. That's fantastic. I, I, I have one more question that's just, which has to do with 5G. One of the things I pay close attention to is where the bullshit is right now. And every, I'm hearing so many different stories about what, what 5G is going to be about because there is no single spec for 5G, you know, as there was right. for 3G and 4G. And of course, Trump comes along and says, I want 6G because I heard about 5G, you know. <laughs> so, but I'm just wondering, I mean, if, if you pay much attention to that, because the whole idea is that, um, is that everything's going to be much more distributed. There's going to be less centralization. There's going to be many more things to attack and they're all different. And, uh, so I don't know if that's on your radar at all or not. Yeah, we're starting to watch that. Uh, Minneapolis is actually supposed to be one of Verizon's first 5G locations downtown. Um, that's not active yet, but it should be coming soon. And, and just starting to see how that plays out. We have a, um, a carrier grade product that's kind of a DNS tracking. It gets back to where we were talking about. We can see you know endpoint to threat actor, command and control, and those things that are happening to show compromised devices like IOTs and other things. We do some of that same functionality for carrier grades. So we're seeing nearly 50% of the DNS traffic in the US passing through our threat intelligence systems. And it's gonna be really interesting as they roll that out and start to distribute that 5G service, um, where that traffic starts to come to and where that, where that goes from. Um, our threat guys are working all the time. We get something like 20 billion records a day into our data lake um, based upon this DNS traffic. Then we use that to help the carriers model their security and, and deal with some of those issues and more quickly be able to recognize when a malicious activity is happening on their carrier grade networks. So definitely something we're watching. Well, that's cool. Well, thanks. Awesome. Well, I, I think um, we've thoroughly, <laughs> thoroughly covered it. It's, you know, well, you scared me a little bit. That's okay. Um, <laughs> you know, it just, it's, it's healthy. It's healthy for all it of didn't us. didn't scare me as much because Catherine actually has responsibility. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. I know. Yeah, no, I'm, and, I'm super And, and I'm, I'm sitting here on something. I just unplug and it's gone, you know, so it's yeah, it's, it's amazing how fast this stuff is happening. We actually did a ransomware webinar yesterday with 
um, cybersecurity insiders. And as we're doing that, all of that uh, Norsk aluminum smelting plant, they hadn't said it was ransomware yet, but you could pretty much tell what was going on where they're falling back to manual mode to keep the lights on in their company. And it's, there's always something. It's crazy. Yeah. I will very freely admit my level of paranoia. I am a patch with, if it, <laughs> I am very on top of security releases and I patch immediately. Middle of the night, you know, it, it doesn't matter. I have no life. I'm totally fine <laughs> with <laughs> patching anything, anytime, uh, because it worries me a little bit. And I don't want it to be my fault. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, but thank you so much again. Oh, yeah, thank you for the chance to talk about really security. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thanks everybody for listening. We hope we hope you learned a lot of things. <laughs>